Well, as I mentioned, we're coming to the, 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 we finished chapter one, and we're coming into chapter two of Genesis. We've been in a series, for those of you who are visiting or new, uh, in Genesis. We're going to be looking at chapters one to 11. Uh, We've spent about six weeks or so or more on Genesis chapter one, and we're now into Genesis chapter two, but verses one to three, which really is the end of Genesis one, in a sense. It's, it's the end of the days of creation. And so we'll be looking at this topic of the seventh day or the Sabbath day. So far, the foundations that we've laid, just to remind you, is that we've looked at God as God, as the king overall, that he is uh, before all things, the eternal one, and that he is the king and creator who made all things, that he did it orderly and by his command. We also spent a few weeks contemplating God's creation of mankind as those made to reflect God in this world and how he made them male and female to serve him. And so we come to the end of the days of creation, the seventh day, a day that is distinct from the other six days and that God, instead of creating, rests and establishes a day of rest, a holy day, a blessed day, as we'll see. So with that, let's turn to our text, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Hear God's word. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his works that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his works that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us rest, that your word brings us joy and delight in you, that you provide for us uh, the bread of life. And so, Lord, strengthen us and nourish us and, and establish us. And give us rest today as we hear your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier uh, uh, in the membership class, I I call this day the forgotten day of the Ten Commandments, the forgotten commandment. Um, And, of course, when we're looking at it in the membership class, I'm always pointing out that those Ten Commandments, the law of God, don't stand as a means of our salvation, but as a response to or the way of life in Christ, a response to the gospel. Um, Nevertheless, oftentimes, we neglect this fourth commandment. We agree there is only one God, that we should not bow down and worship other gods or other idols. We agree that we should not take the Lord's name in vain. We think that murder is wrong, that it's wrong to steal, that it's wrong to commit adultery, that it's sinful to not uh, be truthful in our words, to bear false witness, and to covet. We recognize those things. We may not always be able to parse out perfectly how to do it, but in general, in principle, we agree that those things are good laws. But when it comes to the seventh commandment, I mean the fourth commandment that was established on the seventh day, Um, all of a sudden we hem and haw, don't we? We look at the words and wonder, are they really still relevant today? Wasn't that part of the Old Testament life? Wasn't that the Israelites' commandment, not our commandment? 
Didn't Christ abolish it? And what does it actually mean anyway? Can't I take a Sabbath on any day that I like? Doesn't matter really what day you take it on. And isn't it a day for me, for my family, for us to relax, to spend time together, to chill? After all, didn't Jesus say that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? One of the problems that we have when we approach the topic of Sabbath is that we almost always get to a question. We, we're more interested in where is the line, right? What can I do? What can't I do? What is allowed? What is not allowed? It reminds me that when I lived in Pittsburgh, um, there was a part, a part kind of like West Hartford, but even more so, a part of Pittsburgh called Squirrel Hill that was predominantly uh, Jewish. And it was predominantly Jewish, and it had a very large population of Hasidic Jews. Uh, uh, the, the Hasidic Jews tend to be very strict, um, and they, you would recognize them. They often wear very particular clothing. Um, but in this area of Pittsburgh called Squirrel Hill, I w this community had uh, marked out what they called the Eruv, or Eruv. Um, it was uh, a wall, uh, and it was a definition of space around their community. They, they called this, this wall around their community, this area, a place where they were permitted on the Sabbath day to carry things, to carry things like umbrellas or strollers, because normally on the Sabbath you weren't allowed to carry anything. That was part of the law of God that they said you, you, you're not allowed to carry, carry anything. But this, of course, runs into the practicality of getting to the Sabbath with your children. Well, I have a stroller, or it's raining, or there are these things. Are the, is there a way that we can kind of circumvent this rule or this law with regard to the Sabbath? And so they, they created this idea of this aruv or these walls. And they demarcated the walls with telephone poles. The, the, the rabbi would go around and he would bless or consecrate the particular telephone poles within which you could carry things, out of which you were not allowed to carry anything on the Sabbath day. And so, there, so you can go and you can look up where those, where those telephone poles are uh, in Squirrel Hill. And it was even beyond, a little beyond Squirrel Hill to kind of encapsulate their community. And the reason it was telephone poles, because it was a wall, because it could be defined as a wall because it had a vertical portion and the line created a horizontal portion. So it created a wall-like structure. So where are the walls? I think that's where we get stuck. Like, can I go on this street or this street? Where is the telephone pole? What is, what is allowed? What is not allowed? What am I prohibited from doing on the Sabbath? And I think that's often how we think about it, if we think about it at all, to be honest. Um, I want to flip this idea this morning from what can't I do, I want to flip it to ask, what is it that I get to do and enjoy on the Sabbath, which is difficult or impossible to do any other day of the week? What, what is it that I get from setting aside this day, this holy day, and what do I get to enjoy? What is, in another way to ask the question, what is the purpose of those other six days? It's things I want us to think about. Not, not what can't I do, where are the lines, what, what is allowed, what is permitted, but rather what, what, what do I get to enjoy? And what is the reason and purpose for God establishing this one day in seven? 
My hope is that you will begin to see the delight of Sabbath rest. For in the Sabbath rest, we rest not just from our souls, rest for our souls as we take in spiritual rest. Um, But when we come to this day, we have full-orbed enjoyment and pleasure in the God who made all things and who redeems us for himself. Jesus said best, said it best when uh, in the New Testament when he said, Come, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this is my call for us today. Come, rest in the King of Kings. We'll look at this in three parts. First, we'll look at the Creator King and his rest. Second, we'll look at what it means to be weary image bearers. Last week we looked, or last week, a couple weeks ago we looked at what it meant to be image bearers. Uh, Today I want us to think about what it means to be weary image bearers. And then finally I want us to think of uh, the consummative or the consummative king's rest, that that ultimate king's rest, the rest that we have in glory. And I want us to get there. So we're going to kind of move through scripture by looking at creation, but in the end I want us to to think about revelation, the, the end. But first, the king's, the creator king's, rest. Scripture tells us that God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. We see uh, in Genesis 1 how God is alpha, right? He is the beginning. He creates all things. All things are created by the power of his word. He is the alpha. But here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we start to see how God is the omega, the end of all things, the one who consummates and brings all things together, right? The omega. The heavens and the earth were finished. That's what it says in verse 1. The Alpha. The heavens and the earth were finished. And then in verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He was done. He was complete. And it says it again, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And then he says it again in verse 3, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's interesting. There's something there about the repetition of those words. God rested from all that he had done in creation. He had completed the work. There was nothing left for him to do. And then in the middle of that, you have this, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. But that repetition tells us something. When we see this repeated over and over again here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, this idea that God finished, the Alpha finished creating all that he had done. It was complete. There was nothing left. The king had finished his work. All things that exist are from him. He is the beginning, the king of kings, and the king over all kings. But now we come to the end. He has finished his work. It is done. And the threefold repetition indicates that there's something more, there's nothing more to do in creation. And so the king rests. He steps back and he enjoys his creation. And in this picture, we have no sense um, that there is any weariness in the Lord. It isn't as if he comes to the end of six days and he says, 
I'm exhausted. I can do no more. I have nothing left in me, which is what we often do, right? We come to the end of our workday and we say, I am done, done. I am completely, utterly undone. I have nothing left to give. But it's not so with God. When he comes to rest, it's not as if he has no more strength or no more power. Rather, this is the end of his work. He has completed the work that he has done. I'm, I'm curious if any of you are crafters or any of you are creators or any of you are painters or, or writers or, or whatever. If you're somebody who likes to create stuff, maybe you've experienced this, uh, something I experience. Sometimes I'll pick up a paintbrush, which um, isn't always a good endeavor, but I'll attempt to paint a picture. Um, and as I go and paint, I, I'm painting this picture, and I have an idea in my mind what it should look like. And, I, and I'm doing it, and I'm doing it, and I'm doing it. And sometimes a family member or somebody else will look at it and be like, wow, that seems pretty good. And um, they'll ask if I'm done, and I'll say, no, it's not even close to done. Uh, and I keep messing with it. In fact, the more I mess around with the painting, it almost the worse it gets. And then I try to fix it, and it gets worse, and it's this downward spiral. Aaron and I renovated our last house in Pittsburgh, and it, it was a lot of work. And when we were done, we were living in it, Aaron was very happy. She was excited. Look at all this that we've done. I looked around, and all I saw were all the things undone and all the mistakes that I had made and all the problems that I had with the house. And it just burdened me to think, this is not complete. I want to redo. This is not so with God. When he finished his work of creation, he looked and he declared, this is very good. It is complete. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing left undone. There are no mistakes it was just as he intended, and it was finished. And so the king of kings, the alpha, the beginning of all things, rests from his labors. And what do we learn from this truth? What do we learn just from this, this truth that he completes his creation and then rests? Not only that he is the alpha, but that he is the omega, he is the end. There is nothing greater than him. All that exists, all that came from the fiat of his, of his speaking, all that exists is from him and to him. His resting on the seventh day was a royal rest. The king was setting down on his throne and saying, Come, come and worship me, the king of kings. Delight in me. In fact, we see this in Scripture. Throughout Scripture, the creation will be compared to a throne room, right? Heaven is his throne, and earth is his footstool. And one passage in Isaiah particularly, it ties the idea of king, the king of kings resting in his creation, and we as people finding rest in him. Hear this from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We don't give God a place for rest. That was what David wanted to do, right, when he was 
given uh, he came to the Lord, let me build you a house. I have this fancy house. I built it myself, this palace. Now let me build you a house. And, and God says, no, David, you, you don't need to do that for me. Not only will Solomon do that, and the temple will be a place as a symbol of my resting with God's people, but you don't need to do that. I own it all. There's nothing that is outside my purview. I made it all. It's all for me and for my glory. And he makes it not just that we might say, look, God made all things, which we should do, that he is glorious, but that we might rest in him as his creation and find our satisfaction and all in him. I also want to consider this morning as we look at the creator king uh, that six days of labor and a seventh day of rest is the pattern, right? That's what we see here. It's a pattern. It's not simply that this is the way it unfolded in creation, but it actually stands as a pattern. And we see that in Genesis chapter, or Exodus chapter 20 where the law is applied, you know, remember, my, keep my Sabbath. Why? Well, because I established this pattern way back at creation. And it's more than just a weekly pattern. It is a weekly pattern, but it's more than that that the king established. But the weekly pattern, that alone also speaks to something greater. This idea that the Lord comes and he creates and that he completes points to this idea that there is an end or it tells us that there is something that we are moving to. And every week as we go out into the work week and we come back and we rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're saying that this, this world that we live in is not just a constant cycle of work, 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 but that there is work and there is rest. And every time we rest, we're to remember that there is something greater, something more significant. God works He completes his work and enjoys that glory as the creator king. Notice in the text, sandwiched between the declaration that God rested from his work of creation is that God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He blessed it. What does that mean? It means it's a day of goodness, a day in which all the goodness of God was to be known and received. I had a friend in Pittsburgh I don't know, I, all these Pittsburgh references today. I had a friend in Pittsburgh who I'd sometimes talk to with politics, about politics, and we would lament the state of the world, the nation, and that's nothing's new in, under the sun. And then he would say something radical like, I think we should get rid of our, our democracy, our democratic republic, altogether. We should go back to a monarchy, constitutional monarchy, he would say. And then I would say something very American like, what about the tyranny of kings? And he would say, but Rob, look at the Bible. Scripture highlights having a king, not a representative democracy, as the ideal. And then I would say something like, yes, but the ideal is, is a perfectly benevolent and just and omnipotent king who rules over all things. And the world has never seen anything like that. But here's the thing. This pattern, this one day in seven pattern that God establishes for us is the picture of what it means to be the benevolent king. Here he says, I do all the work, and then I give you all that you need, and what you should do is you should come and rest and and bask in my glory and enjoy my goodness. That's what this is about, me as the king, as that benevolent, omnipotent, perfectly just 
and righteous king. He wanted to show the world on this seventh day, by this seventh day, his benevolence, his goodness. And he set it apart. He made it holy. It wasn't just that he showered us with blessing, but he made it the grandest holiday that ever was. Today we celebrate Father's Day. Today we celebrate Juneteenth, both good holidays. But it doesn't compare to the fact that today we also celebrate the Sabbath day, the day of God's kingly rest and benevolence to us. And as we move through the sermon, we'll start to see the picture of how good this benevolence of God is, how good it is that we rest in him. The last thing I want to note about the Creator King's Day of Rest is that this seventh day points to God's purpose, his goal, his end. The purpose of creation is not creating itself. Rather, it's his glory as creator. We think of rest as that which prepares us to work, and in some sense it does. Rest enables us to work, right? If we don't rest, we won't have the energy to work. But ultimately, the purpose of this rest is not that we might work. Rather, it's the other way around. Sabbath rest is not preparation for work, but our work and the work of God rather was the preparation for the Sabbath day. Do we think about that? When it was set established here in, in Genesis chapter 2, the seventh day was set aside as the crowning day of all of creation. Six days... God creates, but on the seventh day, he establishes his kingly rest. It was the purpose, the end, the telos, the reason for everything else. In other words, you were created for Sabbath rest. So it stands not as subordinate to the days of creation, but as the crown of the week. Six days God created. The sixth day he created mankind in his own image. It was the, of the six days, it was the, the ultimate of the six days, but it was the penultimate of the days. Man was crowned with glory and honor and given purpose to reflect God as image bearers, but it wasn't the ultimate day. You are not the end of all things. Guess what? God is. I had a friend, oh no, ha, I jumped back. I'll dwell on this idea more in our second and third point. But for now, I just want us to see how God establishes this day for himself and for us to enjoy and glorify himself. But now I want to consider how we as God's image bearers might consider this pattern of work and rest and creation. And I entitled this, this point, The Weary Image Bearer. Because I don't think there's a single person out here who does not feel the weariness of this life. Could be wrong. Maybe our little children have yet to feel it. But even they cry and whine and complain. They don't get enough uh, food or enough sleep. Uh, we were just on a, a red eye from California to um, uh, uh, New York. And in this flight, we, we were already tired from a long week of having a lot of fun. And it is about 10 o'clock in the evening, and usually my kids are already asleep. And we come, we're coming through uh, security, and it was stressful. And we were tired, and emotions were raw, and we all kind of got a little upset. 
in the process. Now, you've probably been through security. We all need rest. We are weary image bearers. One theologian noted that it, had it not been for the fall, if man had in fact fulfilled his duty as God's image bearer, that there would have been a completion to our work and a final Sabbath rest. Of course, it wouldn't have been our own Sabbath rest. We would have enjoyed God's rest, but we would have done the work. The work would have gone smoothly. We would have completed all that God had called us to do, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. All those things we would have done if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned and, and, and eaten of the fruit of the tree. Of course, that wasn't the way of it. But then we would have entered into that final rest, enjoying all the work of our labor. But this is not how we experience life. It's not how we experience life. But God made and established this pattern, this one day in seven, because this is the way that we not only recognize God as king, but we rest in him as king. And I want to just note a few reasons for the pattern. One is that as his image bearers, we might reflect him in his labor and rest. This is what he did, so we reflect him. That's what we do as image bearers. We reflect what he did. So six days we work, seventh day we rested. Secondly, we might recognize our place in creation, that we are creatures and that God is king, and we might worship him alone. As we go through our work days, as we come to that seventh day, we stop our work because we recognize that God alone is the king, that we are not. So our work is not ultimate. What we do and complete is not ultimate, but we rest in him. Third, the reason he establishes one in, one in seven, as I've already said, is that we might look forward to the ultimate rest and glory when our labor is complete. So there is a rest yet to come, which we'll come back to at the end of this sermon. Fourth, to enjoy God's blessing, his provision, that all things are from him and to him. We come together in Sabbath so that we might enjoy God's blessing and that we might be refreshed and renewed for those daily labors every week. We were made for this pattern, for work and rest. The only problem is what? Us, our pride. We would have been fully enjoyed that Sabbath as it was designed. But instead, Adam and Eve thought they could usurp God as king, right? They thought, God, we know better. We want the knowledge of good and evil. We want to be like you in every way. We want to take hold of that fruit of the tree and eat it. And it wasn't to them a fruit that was just delightful to the eyes, though it was delightful to the eyes, but it was about becoming like God. Another way to think about this with regard to Sabbath is that we want to decide what we do, why we do it. We want to make it the thing that brings glory and significance to ourself. And, uh, this, the simple way to put this is the goal of sinful humanity is our glory and pleasure. That's in the fall what Adam and Eve said. I want glory and pleasure for myself that God alone enjoys. 
The seventh day stands as a symbol to God's glory and pleasure. So what is the first thing that we should do? Well, let's get rid of the Sabbath day. That's our nature. That's our sinful nature. The Sabbath day is set apart and made holy. It's a day not for ourselves alone, but it's a day for delighting in the king. And I think we have a really hard time with this concept. I was talking with my brother-in-law. He's a professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary in Escondido. And when I told him that I was preaching on the Sabbath, he got really excited. Uh, He started to talk all about the biblical theology of Sabbath throughout Scripture and how the Sabbath observance ultimately gives joy and delight and points us to Jesus and on and on. And if we could just show everyone the joy of the Sabbath, then everyone would just turn into Sabbatarians. He didn't say that. But I agreed with him. I said, yes, Brad, all that's true. The problem is not with the theology. You're right. The problem is our hearts. The things that you offer, though they might be delightful to a degree, don't seem to be so delightful to us. When we think about the Sabbath day as a time when we get to gather together and worship as God's people, as we get to read and hear God's word, as we get to pray and lift up our prayers and praise to the living God, as we act in act, acts of service and mercy and think about fellowship, all those things are good, but there are other good things that we're like, but I'd rather be out hiking. Well, I think I'd rather be watching sports. Ah, sleeping in is really good. Isn't that resting on the Sabbath day? Or you name it, whatever it is, you can think of other things that bring delight. They seem more delightful. And I said this to to my brother-in-law, I said, that's the problem, the things that you're offering, yeah, they're they're good, but they don't seem as good as the, the rest of that stuff that I just mentioned. And you can fill in your own thing that you like. He said to me, Rob, you're right. And then he just said, Rob, As we were thinking about our own hearts, he said, isn't that cause for us to be introspective? Why do I find my personal pleasure, my glory, greater than pleasure in God? And if you're like me, you know it's true. You find your personal pleasure and joy greater than your pleasure in God often. And you have to wrestle with that. You have to say, why is that? If this is the pattern that God has set apart, that he said, here, six days, you do all these things, but ultimately it's about me, it's about my day, it's about my worship, it's about my glory, then why is it that our hearts are always desiring the things of the world? See, our problem with the Sabbath can be boiled down to this problem that Adam and Eve had, which is, We're not God. We don't have the glory. We don't have the pleasure that we want. That's not, we want our own. And so at the end of a long week, we say, man, I deserve a break. I'm not getting up on Sunday morning. Man, I am too tired for worship. I've got too many chores at home to catch up on. I just need some me time. It's all about, I need me time. It's about me. And on and on. You can plug it in. Sinclair Ferguson said this 
the Sabbath is not just about day seven, but it's actually about days one to six as well. And he was reflecting on this because oftentimes in our argument against Sabbath rest, it's because we're busy, right? I think about the Sabbath. I think about all the things that I have to get done. And I come to the, this, the seventh day, and I think, I've just got too much left to do. I've got to do those things. And Sinclair Ferguson said it's, the seventh day is, is part there to help us think about days one to six. You have six days where you can labor and, re- labor and work and do all the things that you need. And there's one day. But then he went on to say, the problem is that we get it backwards. We think of it as a burden that we can't do the things that we need to accomplish on day seven, on the Sabbath day. We think about all the work that we have undone, and we think that's the significant thing. Rather than saying, man, if I can get my stuff done on days one to six, and even if I don't get my stuff done on days one to six, I can take a day where I can just let those anxieties and worries go. I don't have to work. God is the God who made this day. It's for him. It's a day set aside for him. And if I don't accomplish the things I think I need to accomplish, then maybe I adjust those six days. Maybe I prioritize differently. But at the end of the day, at the end of the sixth day, I say, I'm done. Lord, give me rest. Help me to be refreshed. Help me to see my ultimate is not in the work that I complete, but in you. Interestingly, in the life of Israel, the Sabbath commitment was often the telltale heart of the life of the church. The prophet Ezekiel particularly highlights the Sabbath of all the laws, saying Sabbath breaking was the main sign of rebellionist for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. He says this in Ezekiel chapter 20, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, they'll live. And my Sabbath, they greatly profaned. Rather than pull the Sabbath out of the Ten Commandments, the prophet highlights it as the telltale of our heart's rebellion against God. Just sit there for a minute as we think about the reality of our weariness. We are a tired people. We struggle each week to make enough time for all the things that we have to get done. We come around and the week continues, and oftentimes we don't get a break. We don't, we don't take a break. We don't rest. Now, some of you might be saying, but doesn't Jesus abolish the Sabbath keeping in the New Testament? I'd just like to note that Jesus observes the Sabbath. Even from his young age, we, we see that he spends time in his father's house. Do you remember when he was 12 years old, his parents were in Jerusalem, they headed back home, and they're like, where's Jesus? And where do they, where do they go back and they find him in the, in, the, in the temple. They find him worshiping. He spent much of his ministry in synagogues. He engaged in the practice of Sabbath-keeping. And even when he was confronted about Sabbath, you remember he was confronted many times by the Pharisees because he would heal on the Sabbath or he cast out demons on the Sabbath or his disciples even plucked grain as they walked by a a field on the Sabbath. 
And, the, and the, the religious leaders were indignant. And Jesus says, you don't understand. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Ah, there it is, Rob. Abolished. No, he doesn't get rid of the Sabbath. But the problem was the religious leaders were actually using the Sabbath as a means of work. It had become about them, about their glory, about their righteousness, about their standing before God. They had failed to see the significance of the Sabbath Sabbath in being that time in which they could go and enjoy God and the glory of God and the rest of God and the blessing of God. They failed to recognize the purpose of the Sabbath. That Jesus then goes on and says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I rule over it. Lord, that's right, Lord of the Sabbath. And this brings me to my final point and conclusion. The Sabbath in the Old Testament, of course, was on the sixth day, on the seventh day. It was the, it was the, the Saturday, the day uh, before the, the new week. As Christians, we worship on the Lord's Day. We see a few references to the Lord's Day in the New Testament. Um, and it is the first day of the week. And that's not insignificant. For Jesus, the second Adam, when he comes to earth and establishes himself as the second Adam, the one who would re- represent mankind, represent us, his people, he came and obeyed perfectly the law. And in doing that, he himself fulfilled the work that Adam should have done in the garden. And so, when he does his work, he comes to those last days. He says, this is my hour, and he goes to the cross, and he dies. And what does he declare? It is finished. It's done. My work of recreation redemption, of salvation, is complete. Done, done. And so in Adam, we had the curse of the law, all the thorns and the thistles and the weariness and the work that caused us to constantly strive and never complete, like my paintings, like the work that we do around the house, like the yard that constantly grows and never ends, and then turns to snow and leaves and everything else. It's never done. But Christ comes, and he accomplishes all the work that the Father had set before him, and he says, it is finished. Come rest in me. Because the rest that we receive is not ultimately from the physical labors that we do, but it is spiritual rest in the Lord Jesus, rest from our sin. Freedom and redemption. The author of Hebrews says that we read earlier that there remains a Sabbath rest. And as we consider the rest that we have in in Jesus, and this is why we come together on the Sabbath day to worship on the first day, the Lord's day, uh, one one commentator noted that uh, you notice that there's a shift from the last day of the week. You, You worked and rested. Then there was a shift from the first to the first day of the week. You rest, and from that you work. No longer are we burdened by our own work. We don't have to work to gain acceptance to God. That was never able. We were never able. The law crushed us. 
but in Christ we rest, and then we go out and we do the works of righteousness, not by our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, resting in the finished work of Christ. And we then, from that Sabbath rest, continue pressing on. But guess what? There's a day coming when that work is complete. When we gather round the throne of the King of Kings, the Creator, the Alpha, and the Omega, and we gather with God's people, and our labors are done, and we work no more. And we rest in Jesus. And as we come together each Sunday, we gather in fellowship, and we put aside all the worries and cares and concerns of the rest of our labors throughout the week, we come and we remind ourselves that it is finished. There is no more laboring, that your sins are forgiven. They are cast as far as the east is from the west, and you no longer have to labor under the yoke of the law. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we go forth each week saying, this is the work. We're still in this already not yet period, but we go forth in the power of the Spirit and we recognize that our labor is just a temporary thing as it is something that gives us joy as we work and reflect God, but it ultimately finds its fruition in our glory and joy in God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come together and we gather for worship, see it as a joy, friends, as rest in Jesus. Let's pray.